Illustrating early books could be difficult and time-consuming, but could also produce stunning results. In today's episode, we look at books illustrated by engraving. Firstly, Horace by John Pine. It's usually called one of the finest engraved books ever. A, it's engraved completely, and B, it's got these incredibly complicated engravings all the way through it. It's seamless. And then the rather grand-sounding Designs by Mr R Bentley for six poems by T Gray. The T is Thomas Gray, and the R is... Richard Bentley, since 1748, a close friend of Walpole's, and it will be remembered, a privileged um, member of the triumvirate that constituted Strawberry Hill's Select Committee of Taste. I'll talk about Strawberry Hill at some later date. He had somehow, in the course of his prodigious academic childhood and youth, and even in his subsequent years as a disreputable and debt-ridden itinerant on the continent, (laughs) Richard had managed to nurture his considerably native talents as a graphic artist. So he was a somewhat, somewhat dodgy, <laughs> dodgy character. Um, but he did do an amazing job with the illustrations. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks, yeah, absolutely. In the 18th century, there are all sorts of different ways of making illustrations. And what we're going to look at today is engraving. These two books are of another order. And they're more artistic. They're not really scient- they're not scientific. And they're both done by quite interesting personalities. So they're interesting from a historical and literary point of view as well. So the first one, um, the Roman poet, Horace, and it's two volumes. And this book is engraved completely. So not just illustrations and decorations, but the text itself is actually all engraved, which is very unusual and incredibly time-consuming and quite complicated to do, as you'd imagine. It has this lovely binding and beautiful decoration. So it's gilt or gold-tooled binding with this is called sort of like speckled calf so that they actually create the surface of this in this sort of mottled fashion. It's not natural. So this isn't tree calf, which is natural. Um, Volume one and volume two, both exactly the same bindings. We don't know who the binder is. There is a little ticket in the front of volume one, I think, which we thought, I thought was a binder's ticket. But when I looked it up, it's actually a bookseller's ticket. So at some point or other, these booksellers owned it. So it's not, we don't have any information about the binding, but it is contemporary, I'm sure. So this is 1733 and 1737, volume two is 1737, volume one, 1733. And it's refer, referred to as Pine's Horace. That's how everybody talks about it, Pine's Horace. Um, and the reason is that the man who did it all was a man called John Pine. Very little known about him in terms of his early life, but he trained as a goldsmith and he also trained under the engraver Bernard Picard. In 1733, for whatever reason, he decided to take on this magnum opus, which is his engraved edition of Horace's poems in Latin. 
I mean, its audience was obviously going to be the elite of Britain who all learn classics at school and learn classics at university and know their Horace and are interested enough to purchase it. There's a long list of subscribers, and we'll have a look at that in a minute. There's, this is the title, and this is Opera, so that's the works of Horace. The imprint in Latin basically says, in London, and engraved on copper plates. That's sort of more or less what it means. By, and it doesn't, ha- by, Joh- by Johannes Pine. Well, that's John Pine, who's the engraver and publisher and everything else about it, you know, in 1733. Oh, and it's got Gray's signature here up at the top. So this is a George Gray book. This is all Gray ever did, you know. I mean, I, th- I think we've had a look at others, but there is no he doesn't he doesn't have a book plate, but he does often he does often sign his title page. But that's all he'll say occasionally, and we will have an example of occasionally he'll write a pencil note about something, but it is occasional. So we don't know when he bought it. There's a preface in Latin by Pine, and there is his To the Reader. This is the list of subscribers. The top brass are on the first page. And this is written in English, which is helpful, but some of his other dedications are actually written in Latin. You have to work quite hard to work out who who is actually actually dedicating it to. (laughs) His Royal Highness Frederick, Prince of Wales. This is George II's son, who doesn't end up by succeeding him because he dies before George dies. And George III is the son of Frederick, Prince of Wales. So that's why if you haven't heard the name Frederick, um, you haven't heard of a King Frederick in, in Britain. His Royal Highness William, Duke of Cumberland, so his brother, and then the Prince of Orange. So these are the three that have got the title page. And then there's this huge list of subscribers, and these are all people who basically underwrote the project. You know, they've provided their money so that he can actually produce this thing. And there's some very interesting names, apart from the usual raft of um, aristocrats and, you know, well-born people. There is Hogarth, naturally enough. There is Pope, Alexander Pope. There is Jonathan Swift in Volume 2. So you can see that the literary people are behind this and and the, uh, the literary establishment, if you like, as well, are coughing up money to um, help him produce it. So remembering that the whole page here, it's not just this lovely, you know, medallion at the top of the page that is engraved. It's everything, the text included. And when you look at it, it looks very, very um, clean and very type-like. And the reason why is because it was apparently set up in type ahead of time. So it was first set up in type, the text. Then there was an impression taken from the type and then from that was then engraved the actual plate. It's quite hard to think how it would work, but the impression is actually put onto the plate, and then you can engrave the plate. Um, so it's a copper plate, and it's, a, it's the opposite of type in the sense that it's not a relief process, it's an intaglio process. So you've got the surface, and you're actually cutting into the surface, and that's how you make the picture. Whereas type sticks up, you know, and you hit the top of the type. <laughs> Whereas this is this is the opposite version. There's a sort of intermediary process in order to produce this book, which must have made it incredibly expensive because <laughs> it's like doing it twice. <laughs> because the problem about engravings is that they're very. It's quite hard to engrave an image and then have a relief 
bit of text next to it because you end up by having the mark around yeah, the plate. Yeah. You have to do it twice anyway because you've got you have the mark around the plate for the engraving because that has to go through a different press. And then you have the type that has to go through the other press and then you've got to line them up properly. And I mean, he's obviously got this vision of the whole thing in his head as this perfect. Um, so, so when you look at the actual page, it's got the engraved mark around the whole page. It doesn't, it's seamless, you know, in the way that when you try and put engravings into a book, they often aren't. And the other book I'm going to show you is the what I've just been talking about. It's not so seamless and you can see where the gaps are, even though it's beautiful. So here, um, there's all of Horace's poetry. So he's a poet. He's writing really during the sort of civil war of Caesar through to Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. So he he's part, he's in that sort of very tense period of Roman history, really, where uh, just after Julius Caesar's died and, you know, there's a civil war and he eventually backs Augustus, but he starts off backing Mark, Mark Antony. But anyway, um, he gets through OK and he becomes quite friendly with Augustus in the end, apparently. So he must have been forgiven. But this is these are the sort of images, you know, you get in it. They're really, really fine engravings. This, you know, this is the this is an 18th century image of a Roman navy, you know, like <laughs> it's it's very fine, very delicate. You know, this is this is a ship at sea, you know. And of course, all the all the um, initials are all engraved as well. So the whole thing is engraved. <laughs> but there are many, many engravings in this. I mean, it's, it's usually called, you know, one of the finest gra engraved books ever because of the fact that it, A, it's engraved completely and B, it's got these incredibly complicated engravings all the way through it. There's lots of them, you know. And they're all, they've all got this sort of classical feel to them, you know, with medallions and... And then right at the end of volume two, there's a sort of description of what, who all the people in the medallions are. So you know, you know, these sort of profiles of various Roman people like here, you know, you can find out who they actually are right at the end. Um, this is the second volume, and that's dedicated to the Duke of Cumberland. And then it's got a, by, by 1737, when this one is done, he's sort of made his mark, really. And there's, there are greater people on his list of subscribers. So he can say the king <laughs> who has subscribed, the Holy Roman Emperor. He's got the king of France, you know, so he's moved out into Europe. He's made his name in Paris. So he's got a long list of subscribers in Paris. So he's gone all the way over there and he's got subscribers in Madrid. <laughs> it has gained, um, you know, support. People love it. And of course, you know, he's right, this is a Latin poet and the whole of all these European elite learn Latin. It's still the universal language. It's still part of their, um, their, their education. So it's accessible to them in a way now, you know, like we're all sort of in our own national languages. It would, would be quite different. Um, I, picked that, I picked that page out because I love these chariots and these horses. <laughs> you can see the ch chariots and then, in a, you know, in a very 18th century frame, because often they're, they're quite classical, the frames, and then there are the, every now and then there's these sort of aesthetic frames that look very 18th century. And maps, little maps, very small little maps of, you know, engraved maps, which of course in, maps are often engraved, but that, that's the sort of the country around Rome, because Horace had a villa out of Rome where he spent a lot of his time. And then at the end, this is the list of, you know, 
identifying features of all the engravings. So it's like a list of illustrations, you know, what, who, who all, the illustration, all the illustrations are. So these are all the references to all the different people who are in the illustrations. So Pines Horace, there you go. A fully engraved book, and there aren't very many of them that are. The one I'm going to show you now, which is a larger book and is not completely engraved but has fantastic engravings, 1753 and it's got rather an unusual title so I'm going to read it out we'll have a look at the binding in a minute but I'll just open it out it's called Designs by Mr Bentley for six poems by Mr T Gray London printed for R Dodsley uh, 1753 the T Gray is Thomas Gray but the unusual title is a signal to the complexity of how this book was actually put together. Because Thomas Gray was a famously reclusive, really, man and a poet who wrote very little poetry, at least for public consumption. He was more of a scholar, actually. But he was, in a sense, thrust into the limelight because he was friends with a very, well, the son of a very powerful man, Horace Walpole. And Horace Walpole met him at Eton. Gray was lucky to go to Eton because he actually wasn't part of that elite aristocratic bunch who all went to the top schools. His father was a sort of financier, or it's hard to exactly work out what he did. His mother actually had a business which was unusual. She was a milliner and she had it in the, in the, um, in the place, um, in the same sort of, in their house. And... He was the only surviving child in a household where 12 children died. Mm -hmm. And his father is considered to have been very abusive, basically. And eventually his mother left him, which would have been extremely difficult in the 18th century, and went to live by herself. Well, actually with her sisters. So Gray was not from that grand elite from where Horace Walpole came from. Horace was the fourth son of Robert Walpole, the Prime Minister. Horace could snap his fingers and get anything he wanted, basically. <laughs> and he was also a very sociable and lively personality, quite different from Grey. But they met at Eton and became friends because they didn't like games, <laughs> along with a couple of other them. They had this little 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 group called the, what do they call themselves, the Triumvirate or the Quad? Oh, I can't remember anyway. They had a Roman name for themselves. Triumvirate, I think they called themselves. or No, the Quadruple Alliance, that's what they called themselves. <laughs> anyway, they, yeah, they became friends and, and Grey actually was, went off on one of these, you know, 18th century grand tours around Europe with Horace Walpole and Robert Walpole paying the money, of course. When Gray wrote Elegy in a Country Churchyard, which is a poem that people, most people know and became very famous, he just circulated it amongst a few friends, among whom was Horace Walpole, and he probably knew where that was going to go. And, of course, people found out about it, and somebody they got very little warning that somebody was going to publish it in a newspaper. So copyright, it was still in its early, still in its infancy. You know, it was difficult to control who was going to actually publish your work. And they found out that um, it was going to come out in a, in a newspaper very shortly. So Horace whipped out uh, a pamphlet, a very quick pamphlet of, of it in, 18, in 1751, which is two years before this came out. 
and it was a hit. It was a sensation. People loved it. And so Grey was sort of persuaded for a, you know, a, a better volume to come out, one that would, would do justice to his poems. But he was a very retiring man and he, he was sort of okay about it at the beginning and then he increasingly got cold feet and then Horace wanted illustrations, which we've got in this book, and sort of employed this guy called Richard Bentley, who he knew, who's this man here. And there's a very funny description of Richard Bentley, which I've got to read out to you, which is in this recent biography of, of Thomas Gray, where um, Robert Mack, who's the author now, what does he say? Richard Bentley, since 1748, a close friend of Walpole's, and it will be remembered, a privileged um, member of the triumvirate that constituted Strawberry Hill's Select Committee of Taste. I'll talk about Strawberry Hill at some later date. He had somehow, in the course of his prodigious academic childhood and youth, and even in his subsequent years as a disreputable and debt-ridden itinerant on the continent, (laughs) Richard had managed to nurture his considerably native talents as a graphic artist. So he was a somewhat, somewhat dodgy, <laughs> dodgy character, um, but he did do an amazing job with the illustrations. So, I mean, Gray thought six poems—that's not enough. You know, I can't put out a works of six poems; everyone's going to laugh. So he insisted on it being called "Designs by Mr. Bentley" for six poems by Thomas Gray. So he wanted Bentley's name high, and then he just about—I don't know—threw a complete wobbly when he found that Horace wanted to print his portrait in it. And he absolutely refused. No portrait. What have you portrait? So there's no portrait. Um, it's called Designs by Mr Bentley for six poems by T Gray, and it has these fantastic illustrations. But because it's the, only the illustrations are engraved and the text is type, it's only on one, one side of the page, which is one of the reasons why Pine wanted the, his Horace to look the way it did, because he didn't want this sort of blank followed by a, you know, well, I'll open the first page because there's so few of them, like, as Gray said. It's worth looking at every page. So there's the ode. This is called the ode. And these, these designs are sort of high rococo, really. I mean, they're just fantastic. Um, these are all engraved by, these by Richard Bentley, this man. And he's read the poems and he's got all the allusions to all the different aspects of the poetry, all in, all in the illustrations, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but you can see how complicated they are. There's these strange creatures sort of around the edge. There's monkeys, there's liars, there's, you know, there's a skull down the bottom. And I mean, this is all pre the goth pre that gothic revival. So Walpole is, is mostly known, well, one of the reasons Walpole is known now is because he wrote The Castle of Otranto, which was a gothic novel, and he built this astonishingly gothic, with a K, house called Strawberry Hill. But this is after this. So he's in the, he's sort of starting his career, and he had a press at Strawberry Hill where he actually published books on at Strawberry Hill Press. But this is still, this is the early gothic, and here you can see it in the illustrations. So here's, here's an engraving. Here's an engraving at the top of the page, but you can see it's got its little mark around the mm-hmm. plate. And then this, is, this has had to go through the, the press twice to get the type, because the type's been done um, with metal type. But then on the back of it, there's, an empty, there's a blank page, because it's very hard to do these things neatly and do them, uh, you know, back to back. One that shows a slightly lighter side to, to Gray's personality because he probably was afflicted with depression. You know, he, he didn't write too many poems. He spent, after this sort of flurry of, of fame, um, he basically went to Cambridge and became a sort of fairly reclusive scholar. He didn't 
really engage in society, certainly not like Horace Walpole did. But this is Ode on the Death of a Favourite Cat Drowned in a Tub of Goldfishes. But this is Horace Walpole's cat. And so there's all these sort of images of the cat around here fishing for the goldfishes with a net one of the things about Gray, because he's not so well known now, but he was incredibly well known um, during the 18th century and 19th century, and lots of people knew Elegy in a Country Churchyard, but he also created some of these phrases that people often think now must be Shakespeare, because <laughs> they, they know it's a sort of idiom, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's the, you know, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. This is Gray, and that was, that's the page it's got it in. And then here's the Elegy. So here's the elegy written in the country churchyard, which can be identified as a church called Stoke Poges, which is where his mother, well, his, his, it's, a, it's a sort of area that his family came from, and his mother retired there when she left her abusive husband and was buried in the churchyard, although not till after this poem was written, and Gray himself is buried there. So this is the one that begins, the curfew tolls the knell of parting day, which... The lowing herd wine slowly o'er the lee. The ploughman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. And, you know, a number of you may have heard that. There, again, it's, it has these little phrases and probably one of the ones that people will hear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. And that's, that comes from elegy. Um, and there are others. And far from the madding crowd is another phrase that comes from here, which... Of course, Thomas Hardy knew, and when he called his novel that, yes, far from the madding crowds, ignoble strife. And, and, you know, it's about everybody's death, basically, our own death, everybody's death. And then right at the end, explanation of the prince. This is done by Horace. He's gone through and told you what to look at, you know. I think I'll tell you what's the one about the cat. Yeah, the cat standing on the brim of the tub and endeavouring to catch a goldfish. Cat's head between two expiring lamps, and over that two mouse traps between a mandarin, mandarin cat f- sitting before a Chinese pagoda and angling for goldfish into a china jar, and so on. You know, so he's described what Bentley has produced. It's just such a, a beautiful production. I think they sold it for a guinea each or something. But then they did do two more in the same year. So I think it was so successful that actually they did print more more than they first started with. I mean, they don't have a a list of subscribers. This has all been bankrolled by Horace, probably. This one, of course, is Bound in Vellum, which you may have noticed. Mm. It's quite warped, the board and the, the, the vellum board. This was bought, in fact, for the library in 1984 by Eleanor Hamlin, as rare books librarian, um, and bought from Pickering and Chateau, who are quite you know, a reputable dealer. But you can see that the, the vellum is actually warped and is is pushing off the board here and it has at the front Anna Maria Weldon July the 20th 1760 so this is 1753 so it's quite early possibly right at the beginning you know given to her by a friend she loves honours and esteems Uncover a truly unique collection. Visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website.
This podcast was brought to you by Napa Takakorero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.